0: Foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's, it's Blood for Oil.
1: Revolution. I'm Terry Matson of Code Pink's Latin America team, coming to you today from Managua, Nicaragua. Welcome to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston. KPFK ninety point seven FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting (WMCB-LP one hundred seven point nine FM). We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org/radio, where you will find our episodes from our very first to our most recent. Today's episode is titled Mexico. Expanding Democracy and Defending Sovereignty. We will spend the hour discussing the direct democracy expanding throughout Mexico via the leadership of current president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, and his political movement and party, Morena, and why this transformation has led to accelerating threats by the United States Congress of military intervention to disrupt the national, political, and natural resource sovereignty of our immediate neighbor, Mexico. Our guest is Mexican journalist, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, who joins today's program from Mexico City. Jose Luis is a journalist with Venezuela Analysis and the Mexico Solidarity Project. But first we start with some news out of the region. From Telesur, Latin America leaders reject Zelensky at EU Select Summit. Although the Spanish president invited Zelensky to be at Brussels' high-level event, the majority of Latin American leaders opposed his presence. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky did not participate in the summit between the European Union and the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, SELAC. Although Spanish President Pedro Sánchez invited the Ukrainian president to the high-level event, a majority of Latin American leaders opposed Zelensky's presence, citing that the invitation inferred select support for NATO as well as support for military intervention in Ukraine. From the UN Secretary General, the UN Secretary at deployed a team of three United Nation experts to Honduras on July 10th to provide technical assistance regarding the future establishment of an international, impartial, independent, and autonomous mechanism against corruption and impunity. This in accordance with the Memorandum of Understanding signed in December 2020 between the UN Secretariat and the government of Honduras. This. On the heels of three events. One, the creation of the Commission for Aggregarian Security in early June in which Xiomara Castro's government ordered the execution of all pending eviction orders with special attention to illegally occupied farms belonging to palm oil and sugarcane transnationals. The second, being the massacre of 14 people in a billiard room in Choloma, and the third, a massacre of 50 women in the Tamara Women's Prison. Theories regarding the violence include possible connection to Juan Orlando Hernandez's narco-trafficking trial, and also possibly that the military wants to take back control of the Honduran prison system because of its profitability. Honduras has been in a state of exception since December 2022. And from the Wall Street Journal, Republicans' new border plan, send military into Mexico. Republicans running for president and in Congress are coalescing around a controversial way to wage war against illegal drugs, sending the U.S. military into Mexico. This is gaining traction via the fentanyl market, which involves China, Mexico, and the United States. The U.S. Congress is discussing labeling Mexican cartels terrorists, which would create an entire toolbox of intervention techniques to be used against Mexico, threatening Mexico's national, political, economic, and natural resource sovereignty. Finally, a brief mention that here in Nicaragua, we celebrated July 19th, the 44th anniversary of the Sandinista revolution, reinforcing the revolution's successful battle against US imperialism and the retention and and maintenance of its sovereignty. So now let's talk about more about US intervention in Mexico and the threat thereof. Let's bring in Jose Luis Granado to learn more about the expansion of democracy in Mexico and its defense of sovereignty and how this is juxtaposed to U.S. threats of intervention in Mexico. We're going to start out talking about exactly what this electoral reform bill does. It creates greater democracy, greater direct democracy, and we'll talk about exactly uh, some of the points that have been changed. And then um, we'll talk about how this and other um, accomplishments of the AMLO government are being really um, made to look derogatory in the Western uh, press and how we see that here in Mexico as a form of interventionism, uh, among other forms of interventionism. So with that, Jose Luis, welcome to the program. (laughs) Like I said, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. We've wanted to do this for so long. I'm
2: um, I'm really glad to be here
1: well and it's so and it's so wonderful i just want to you know say again it's just really congratulations on you know completing your advanced studies it's really um really something to be proud of so anyway, Thank you. so so let's talk about this electoral reform um exactly what it's done and and you and i have talked that it really fundamentally has created greater democratic participation in the electoral process and of course that is not something um, the West, particularly the global North is happy about.
2: (laughs) I think, you know, when we talk about Lopez Obrador and what he calls the fourth transformation of Mexico, what do we mean by that? Uh, so basically. Lopez Obrador tries to position his political project as a grand historical project. And it's the fourth transformation because it's the fourth one to happen historically in Mexico. The first one being the fight for independence, the second one being the reform, the third being the revolution at the beginning of the 20th century and this one, the the Mexico's fourth transformation. You know, and a lot of critics say, well what does he mean by that? What is he, what is he actually saying? Why is why would he, this be so significant? And I actually think looking at it through the lens of democracy is actually a pretty good place to start. Right? lopez obrador's election in 2018 wasn't an ordinary election it was a breaking point it was a watershed moment in the sense that we've talked a lot about mexico previously on this program and in different spaces about being a country that was a young democracy in the sense that well yes mexico after the mexican revolution Came to be ruled by the Institutional Revolutionary Party, basically for about uh, seventy years. Uh, the details of which we we don't necessarily have to get into, but very much
1: but consolidated. You know, it, it
2: did become a uniparty.
1: Like yes, we're experiencing like those of us in the United States are experiencing now, and I think, I think that's that's important because that has been broken.
2: Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was it or was pushed one aside
1: with the alternative.
2: And and the pre the revolutionary institutional revolutionary party it's a bit of a weird uh, political beast in the sense that it was a big tent uh, you had socialists anarchists communists involved with it certainly in the early years but then uh, I'd like to kind of focus more on sort of the modern period and let's say about you know from the from the 70s onwards. And it was very much a a one party authoritarian state that did not tolerate dissent. We can go back a couple of years, notably 1968, there was this global moment of of students mobilizing and Mexico was no exception. And the way that the the Mexican student movement was crushed was militarily, through force, through a mass murder that happened in Tlatelolco. Uh and so that kind of gives you an idea of what Mexico was like under this one party authoritarian state. And Taltelolco is
1: uh, an alcaldia or a section of Mexico City, just Yeah, the it's, it's is, this beautiful...
2: It's a, yeah housing project that was yeah. kind of developed in, in back in, in, in the 20th century as a means of trying to you know facilitate urban growth in a very specific way it's a very interesting neighborhood i think a lot of people who come to mexico don't don't get to visit so if people are watching i recommend to come check it out uh but anyway so so in the sense that kind of represents what mexico was like and obviously there was a movement to democratize the country but this movement was one that was always uh, complex in the sense that it sought not just oh you know one person one vote universal suffrage multi party elections but sought to, to sought to make Mexico a country democratic in a more complete sense which is the, which is that this is a wealthy country Mexico is incredibly resource rich it shares a border with the largest economy in the world and somehow we have pervasive po- uh, poverty why is that because we were ruled by a one-party authoritarian state and there are people who were fighting in the streets through advocacy organizations through mobilizations through popular pressure international appeals etc etc to see a change Now, that change ultimately did come, but it was incomplete in 2000. So in 2000, we saw the first time the pre lose the presidency, and at the time, the winner was Vicente Fox of the right wing National Action Party. Now, you should always kind of have an asterisk next to this, because truth be told, if there wasn't fraud in 1988, it's very likely that we would have seen a change in the leadership of Mexico. But again, this was the, you know, sort of the the, the darkest days of Mexico's authoritarian past. And Vicente Fox kind of rode a wave of discontent and promised to consolidate Mexico's transition into a democracy. But ultimately, what ended up being installed in the country was kind of similar to the United States in that you had two ruling parties that kind of alternated in power, but ultimately were very um, were very similar to each other, didn't actually deliver on those promises of the grassroots democratization movement in this country. And so, you know, there was a, a back and forth. A Fox's election was followed 2006 by another fraud against Lopez Obrador, the today president, mm-hmm. where uh, as a result of collusion between the elites and the then Uh, federal electoral institute, the predecessor to the INE today, who facilitated this fraud. And ultimately, Felipe Calderon was able to secure power, although a very, very, uh, unstable coalition to be able to actually rule over the country i think in a lot of ways the security situation that mexico is living in is a result of that fraud uh just as an aside felipe calderon is the one who launched this so-called war on drugs inside of mexico the war against the cartels which has produced the security situation that we're living in to this date but anyway so like i said so uh you know to fast forward a little bit we get to 2018, López Obrador wins in a landslide, more than 50% of the vote. Mexico doesn't have two rounds of election. It's a first past the post, whoever wins a plurality of votes. But even in that case, López Obrador wins an impressive mandate, the strongest mandate in Mexico's modern history, and also is accompanied by a strong majority in the Congress. And so he is basically given the opportunity to complete this forced transformation. And we should think about it as a democratization because everything that didn't happen in 2000 with Vicente Fox did happen with Lopez Obrador, which is to say that the great majorities of this country, which is to say the campesinos, the working class, the students like myself, who were excluded by the neoliberal system finally had a representative in Palacio Nacional, finally had someone who was defending their experiences, who sought to improve the lives of the mass majority, as opposed to ruling on behalf of the wealthy, the urban elites, the economic elites, the oligarchy that very much exists inside of this country. And that I think is a great place to start when we think about democracy and why I find it so curious that, you know, you see these attacks saying that he is undermining the country's democracy. I would say that this actually his election and everything that it represents and everything that's brought the democratization of our resources, the spreading of the wealth, the funneling of support to students, to seniors, all of that, that too needs to be understood as an act of democracy and how we should evaluate this government just because he doesn't fall into the categories that the intelligentsia would like a so-called leftist leader to fall into doesn't mean that the project isn't something that is profoundly transforming the country. It's happening very much in the Latin American way, right? I think what's one of the things that I've been exploring in my studies is that I think a lot of analysts, a lot of pundits, they simply lack the framework to truly understand what's happening in this country. And so they decide, because they're so wedded to their ideology, to attack the government saying it's not democratic. When the truth is, a lot of what's happening here is stuff to be excited about.
1: But, and it, it's, I would argue, you, well, you and I have talked, it's more democratic. And that is one of the reasons that the United States and other Western nations are, uh, have become so negative, particularly in the mainstream media press, so anti And of course, this is an election year. And uh, there's a lot of external interests that do not want to see another Morena government next year. And and part of the Morena philosophy is to dismantle neoliberalism. (laughs) And that, in fact, is happening. I mean, you can't undo it all overnight and still you know have a viable economy. It's got to be dismantled and redistributed gradually, which is is happening. And you know, it's really fascinating to me and somewhat disappointing that that there is not more focus on Mexico from the global north, from the US and Canada particularly which you and I are very familiar with <laughs> both of those countries it's like everyone just kind of looks right over you know the country immediately to the south of the United States and then goes further south for you know people looking at Colombia looking at Honduras looking at Peru Venezuela Cuba Nicaragua and we just kind of look right over Mexico and there is so much happening here maybe that's a good thing You know that it that the advancements and the dismantling of neoliberalism are just happening without a lot
2: of eyes except except the ones we don't (laughs) want well that's that's exactly the point i was gonna make And in a a sense it is flying under the radar right but unfortunately the people we should be worried about are paying attention and you know you open this program talking about the the electoral reform right that's probably one of the things people who keep up with the news in in the US and Canada, have probably heard about Mexico, oh, he's an authoritarian, he's undermining the National Electoral Institute, the INE, right? And and the reason that they choose these kinds of uh, attacks, these lines of attacks is because they, they are pretty effective, right? There has been a concerted effort since the beginning of the first pink tide since the election of Hugo Chavez in 1998, and everything that followed, to try to depict any government, any movement, any party that is counter hegemonic, that resists US and Canadian imperialism as being one that is inherently authoritarian, inherently anti-democratic, right? So we're talking about these reforms. And we should be clear, um, there was actually two reforms that were put forward. One was a constitutional reform. And that one actually was far more um, far reaching than the one that was ultimately approved. And what that one actually sought was to democratize our electoral institute. Now, the Electoral Institute, as I kind of give a really brief overview of, of Mexico's transition into democracy, you know, it was one of the uh, conquests of that movement, but it became elite captured. It became a space that very much served the same interests that sustained that pre-dictatorship for so this many years. This is the years.
1: Electoral Institute.
2: That's right. Yeah. and And so- They're the ones who supervised the 2006 election, which is widely Mm -hmm. viewed as being fraudulent, as having one that actually produced a result that didn't reflect the will of Mexicans, right? That's the most basic. Uh, definition of fraud that we that we can have and so what did lopez Obrador do he said let's democratize this and actually put forward the proposal to have them elected so there would be a list of candidates that were pre-selected making sure that they had the competencies necessary to be able to serve in this post but ultimately leaving up to the citizenry why not right like if we elect our representatives to Congress, if we elect the president, if we elect our local representatives, why shouldn't the people who supervise our elections? Now, that one ultimately didn't get approved. Uh, You need a supermajority to do so. And Morena has a majority, but it's just a a simple majority, not a a supermajority. And so it didn't go forward. So what came around was Plan B. And this is the one that that you mentioned. And it was pretty simple. It's, it's, It's actually kind of amusing to read the responses of the pundits because what did it say? It was basically a, a organi- reorganization of the Institute. Mm-hmm. It sought to facilitate uh, voting for marginalized groups. So people who are, um, you know, uh, jailed, people who live abroad, right? People who uh, experience different barriers to being able to participate.
1: Disabled right? people, seniors, and youth. Exactly. Young people have now been, exactly. young,
2: yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and yet because, this happened under the context of a, of a very sharp political disagreement with the then head of the National Electoral Institute, Lorenzo Córdoba. It was billed as this idea of, of trying to uh, weaken Mexico's independent institutions, right? But what was this institution really up to, right? Lorenzo Córdoba was very much a political actor. And I think this is one of the points that I really try to transmit to audiences. You know, when you see these kinds of kind of uh, rallying around certain issues, when sort of the same old political faces and the same voices, you know, notably people like David Frum, you know, writing about Mexico, accusing uh, López Obrador de democracy because of this reform that he put, you know, it, it, it should raise alarm bells, right? And I call them conservative strongholds. People, faces like the INE, And the judicial branch of government here in Mexico become these spaces where the conservatives, having lost political power, run away and and take refuge. So they take refuge in these strongholds and then use their ability inside to influence to then attack the democratically elected government. So if we look at it that way, who's actually the anti-democrat? Who's actually the ones who are undermining the country's democracy? Well, it's the people who are using unelected posts, who are using unaccountable institutions, institutions that are flagrantly violating the Constitution, in order to attack the government, which was democratically elected, and worth mentioning, continues to enjoy widespread popular support. Kind of enviable numbers. He's often listed as the first or second most popular leader in the world yeah maintaining 60 he certainly is majority. on twitter every morning <laughs> it's and, live you know, it's funny. he's become an influencer it's no, actually no, i he's think there sure. was a study that uh the broadcast so lopez does a morning news conference usually lasts around two hours sometimes longer every day monday to friday uh, at uh, six seven in 7. the morning yeah. and it's so widely viewed on social media that he's now number seven in terms of global audience in the spanish speaking world amazing yeah. right and so that too Same. is often used oh look at this strong man this caudillo he's <laughs> you know lecturing from his bully pulpit when it's actually imagine that imagine if we had the ability as journalists to really interrogate the president every day yeah. on whatever issue you want right that's yeah. that's that's awesome positive and
1: negative you know
2: <laughs> but absolutely and there are people who are the president
1: to get out in front of the news cycle every day
2: oh yeah and 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 you know and there are people who are very antagonistic who show up and they grill him and he handles it right one final thing about the reform right so this reform was put forward it was approved but again i talked about these conservative strongholds they the reform the second one the plan b has been suspended at this point so the supreme court officially ruled to suspend the implementation of this law for a lot of reasons but for me, I think the key thing to take away is that again, we're seeing pressure being put on the judicial branch in order to ensure the same privileges that always existed in this country remain in place, and these kinds of reforms aren't changed. There's been a change at the top as well at the INE, at the National Electoral Institute. Lorenzo Cordova, this man I, I, I said who was openly uh, hostile towards the president, was forced to step down at the end of his term, and now there's some there's some there's some new there's a new leadership there, which is you know I think. So far, has shown itself to be more willing to accommodate itself to what essentially is the demands of the majority in this country, as expressed through its political system.
1: You know, um, you mentioned earlier the capture of institutional capture, and how the ruling elites can stay in power, can control uh, decisions made in the country in non-elective positions. And this, I would argue, this is exactly what has happened in Guatemala, And of course, they had presidential elections, uh, what, the 25th. And uh, yeah, Sunday, and uh, we've seen what the what can happen and how people are just kept
2: off the ballot,
1: and for no reason, just totally. You yeah. know.
2: But even yeah. that, right? we saw this dark horse candidate who wasn't even figuring in the polls, turns out he's the runner up, and he's going off to the mm-hmm. runoff, right? The mm-hmm. masses, are smart, we should trust them right you they can try to put all these barriers that they want they you can have the elites hiding in their conservative strongholds trying to influence policy, but that resistance bubbles up one way or another right, sometimes it takes longer, you know we had Honduras, dudas neighboring. Uh, Guatemala as well, right now it's actually the the uh, the anniversary of the coup against Mm -hmm. Mel right? Mel same thing. Nobody expected him to be the popular voice that he was. And he was, you know, ousted by a coup. But a few years later, a few election cycles later, the people were able to Defeat those conservative forces that had installed themselves after the coup. And now we have a popular leftist leader in Xiomara Castro ruling Honduras, right? Same thing. And having, you know, a lot of challenges exercising exactly. power because of, you know, the the, the, the institutional elites and interests.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But the point is is to, to, to have faith, right? And I think, you know, you said... I really like that, that people should pay attention to Mexico. Um, You know, you and I were together in in Washington DC for the Latin American Caribbean Policy Forum, right? And uh, I was invited to present, and it was really encouraging to see how enthusiastic people are about what's happening in Mexico, right? Well, you just just gave a great speech too. (laughs) (laughs) I yeah,
1: I, I, like, you're right. The audience was, I can, t- I'll share with the uh, the YouTube live audience that, you know, um yeah, the, the audience was very enthusiastic to listen to Jose Luis's presentation. And uh because I don't think anyone has really heard in the North all the changes yeah.
2: that are happening. Advancing. I think that's the yeah. exciting part. You know, People like... Just
1: were, so excited Political and you did such processes. a great job with your presentation anyway oh, so.
2: yeah you know like they're fluid right there are advances two steps forward one step back et cetera, et cetera, right uh but in mexico i think overwhelmingly it's a project that continues to move forward that continues yeah. to accumulate power that sees a more mobilized base whereas a population that every day, because a lot of people, for example, tune into that that broadcast and hear a history lesson from the president and start to really kind of engage with these with these topics. And why can I say with confidence that th- that's advancing? Well, we just had um uh gubernatorial elections in the single most important state in the country. That's so the state of Mexico is a a, a part of the of the republic and it surrounds mexico city on three sides it's very important economically it's the second most important um jurisdiction in the country followed or followed by um outpaced only by mexico city so it's a really key place and actually the pre there has rule had ruled for nearly a hundred years uninterrupted rule right and they just lost in the last election to who to morena and that's actually been the case in a dozen elections that we've had since 2018 right the the territorial reach the political reach of morena which is lopez obrador's party is now grown immensely right it it is a political movement which obviously has its contradictions i'm not trying to say that it is the vanguard of the global revolution but in a lot of ways it's doing things correctly and and it's clearly continuing to win the hearts and minds to the point that a lot of these attacks as you said, are actually aimed at what's going to happen here in the country in 2024. What it's actually about is this fear that so López Obrador can't run for re-election, he's prohibited by the Constitution. We're in the midst of the succession race. Who's going to be the candidate? But so far, looking at the polls, doesn't matter who the candidate wins. Morena wins the presidency, which means the fourth transformation will continue. And that makes a lot of people, particularly the imperialists, the ruling class, very unhappy.
1: Thank you so much, Jose Luis. Let's take a quick break before continuing our conversation.
0: El amigo en todo camino y jornada vas siempre conmigo aunque eres un hombre aún tienes alma de niño aquel que me da su amistad su respeto y cariño Pasamos muy duros momentos Y tú cambiaste por fuertes Que fueran los vientos Es tu corazón una casa De puertas abiertas Tú eres realmente el más
2: cierto En horas inciertas
1: Welcome back, I'm Terry Manson of Code Pink's Latin America Team, broadcasting today from Managua, Nicaragua. That was Amigo by Mariacho Lobo. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, DC, and KPFT in Houston. Now let's return to our program with journalist Jose Luis Granada Seja speaking with us from Mexico City. Let's talk about um, some of the things that the U.S. particularly, but the Western uh, international community is doing to uh, negate the the progress of Morena and impinge the success of, of Morena winning the presidential election next year. Because some of it is... Media oriented, and some of it is far, far more aggressive than that. But before we do that, I just want to see you talking about the success of this government. I just want to share with the audience. I came here in September of 2020. The exchange rate was 21 Mexican pesos per one US dollar. Today, it's hovering around. 15.95 15.95 to 16 US dollars to one Mexican or pesos to one Mexican dollar. So throughout this, I was I, I want to bring this up with the audience because this is a post-pandemic recovery. The and to show, I mean, that's a pretty big, you know, strengthening of the Mexican peso, especially coming out of uh the, the pandemic environment. And it also illustrates to the entire world, in my opinion, that public investment, that state-managed infrastructure, natural resources doesn't cause debt. <laughs> it has strengthened the economy and the currency. I mean, it's phenomenal. And I don't, I don't think we frame it that way enough. And just sheer economics, that this is not, you know, a government or economic uh, philosophy to be afraid of. It should be embraced <laughs> in the success that, yeah. So. So anyway, I just wanted to, to give that, you know, a little. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, don't Mexico talk about the success
2: of the is absolutely out. a success story in economic terms. I think a lot of yeah. these kind of counter hegemonic projects ultimately are as long as they're left to actually be able to exercise its sovereignty and pursue an independent course. I think about Bolivia as well. Bolivia, in terms of its economic indicators, is, is probably the strongest economy in all of South America. You know, Mexico is doing. Really well. And, and I think it's because there is a, a certain ideological component to neoliberalism, right? This idea that there is no alternative, that neoliberalism is the only thing that will be able to bring well-being to the people. And obviously, you know, you can't fool us in Latin America like this is this was the testing ground for neoliberalism in a lot of ways, right, from from Chile, all the way through, through Mexico, uh, you know, I talked about the pre's one party authoritarian dictatorship, well, that meant that in the 80s, when the pre made that neoliberal turn when it just started becoming a party of neoliberal technocrats of the, the, the Chicago boys style economic policy, you know, um, forced this kind of political program, economic program on the country, and it delivered uh, none of the promises that they said that they would. You know, people who are old enough to remember the debates around the free trade agreement in Mexico in the 90s will remember that the, the pitch to the country was, we're going to become a first world country if we sign this deal. And what did we get instead? We had the countryside totally abandoned. We saw a deliberate effort to privatize the vast majority of state-owned industries, key uh, commanding heights of the economy, like the oil sector, were deliberately uh, left to rust, basically to uh, relegate it to a, a junior position. There was a bet on the maquiladoras, which is, uh, you know, export oriented, cheap labor, and sure, okay, the uh, unemployment numbers went down. But what kind of jobs were actually being, you know, delivered under this? And so, you know, we have over 30 years of this. And when Lopez Obrador came in, and I think there's there's political lessons there as well. You know, it was a radical change. It's like, no, we're going to rescue the state-owned electricity company. We're going to rescue the state-owned oil company. We're going to invest in 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 infrastructure projects in parts of the country that had. We're going to nationalize more. our
1: lithium fields.
2: Exactly right. Like and yeah, and yeah. sort of these are big changes, right? And yeah. like these, this means these are
1: things that the global North neo neoliberals neo. Liberals, neo uh, don't,
2: yeah, you know and that's
1: I, that's why there's all this negative uh, attack on yeah. AMLO, the country I mean, that think about like for example, you your, that
2: support the project. Your, your listeners in the us right who 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 went through a transition from Republicans to Democrats. and as Biden promised before, uh, he actually entered the White House, nothing fundamentally would change. Nothing fundamentally changed. But in Mexico, a lot of things fundamentally change, right? Massive expansion of social programs, more investment than ever before in terms of of people-centered programs, cash transfers, scholarships, new universities, right? Like I said, a a reorientation of the national economy away from neoliberal orthodoxy to one that is state-led economic development using let like Pemex, the state oil company as a motor of development to say, this is a place like where we can use the wealth of the nation to fund roads so that products can get to market to build hospitals to finish there were over a 100 hospitals that were left incomplete uh by previous governments and the government said, We're gonna we're gonna finish these and we're gonna try to improve our healthcare system. You know, I think a lot of times we can talk about sort of like the big picture. And one of the things I like to do is kind of talk about my personal experience because nobody can deny my lived experience, right? Uh you know, I'm a 30-something year old um, born here in Mexico, but as a basically as a result of neoliberalism, my family had no choice but to leave to try to find opportunity elsewhere. But I made the decision to come back in 2018, in order to, you know, really contribute to put in uh, whatever I could to, to the transformation happening in this country uh, through my profession as a, as a journalist, but I've also taken advantage of the opportunities, right, I, you know, did my master's program in human rights, right, it's a program focused on an anti-imperialist lens of human rights no sort of not that liberal notion that you hear from people from the inter-american uh, human rights system right um in a public university that was open and founded by Salvador, right <laughs> when he was when he was uh, the the governor of mexico city and then for the my generation my my cohort was the first one to receive a generous uh scholarship from the state so that i could focus on my studies Full time, right? Every day I board a cable bus that was built in the periphery of the city where I live that takes me yeah, the to cable bus
1: is like a um uh, uh like a tram system. Gondola, like in yeah. the global north is pretty much what we use to go skiing. Yeah. In the global south, it's public transportation. The mass public transportation yeah. is beautiful, actually,
2: because it's a really it's a nice little relaxing ride in the sky. Right. You know, and then I board yeah. a subway that cost me less than 30 cents to board even with well with the, the peso now even less. Right. Um, and to, to make it to, to school to again to attend. It's like all of these things. That are quality of life things. You know, one of the people asked me like, you know, why did you make the decision to, to return to Mexico? Well, in Mexico City, it's also a city that's been governed by the left for a long time now. You know, it's a place where a working class person like myself, right? I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, savings. I don't have any, uh, crude wealth. Uh, you know, I can thrive. I cannot just survive. I read the stories about people who can't, who have good paying jobs and somehow can't make their ends meet. And here I am in Mexico thriving, you know, like I said, riding a robust public transportation system to go hang out in a beautiful public park, right? Where there's probably some kind of free activity going on, some play, some games for children, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's extraordinary to live in a very different context and a place where I sincerely feel like there's a lot of hope. But all of that to say though, we do need to see a deepening of this transition, right? Like this is a very good start. Uh, I think only Lopez Obrador would have been capable of being able to secure that mandate that he did in the, in the 2018 election and to carry out the transformation to resist all the pressures. That were obviously put on the President to abandon his promises to abandon his commitment to the, the country's poor majority and to actually engage in that transformation of the country. And now, you know, like I said, he's constitutionally limited. So let's see what happens next. Let's see what, what can happen in terms of, of deepening that process and also attending to some of those contradictions that, that do exist, right? Some of the things that we do need to see some changes from the government on.
1: So let's talk about, um, I mean, those of us here in Mexico, it's, it's pretty obvious Moreno's going to win next year. And the, the, the neoliberal, the people who support the neoliberal capitalist model really don't want to see that happen. They don't want any more nationalization of natural resources, for one, and many other things, the broadening of democracy. Let's talk about some of the tools that the U.S. specifically, but the Western media in general are using. And I would, and we should also talk about what the U.S. Congress is considering doing um, to halt uh the advancement of the Fourth Transformation.
2: So we talked a little bit about some of the attacks we've seen in the mainstream media. Uh, invite people to subscribe to the Mexico Solidarity Project because that's actually one of the ways that we've been really been focusing on it is kind of answering some of these, um, frankly, false Criticisms that are happening from the likes of Ann Applebaum and David Frum and Bill Barr and all of these sort of uh, old figures from the the elite of U.S. politics, uh, and for example, you know, saying that he's undermining democracy and all these kinds of uh, kinds of things, trying to paint this picture. I think if you look at a lot of the coverage that happened around then, there was this notion that every single article kind of slipped this in there, saying. López Obrador basically wants to manipulate the country's electoral system in order to ensure that his successor wins in 2024. Again, politics is fluid. We know that
1: Morena is going to win.
2: Exactly. That That would be like a Richard
1: Nixon thing, right,
2: in Watergate. Like, you know
1: you're going to win, and you do something stupid anyway. Yeah. And this president uh, is not stupid.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no yeah, and that, I mean, we should, we should, we, hopefully we have some time to talk about it. He's He's a political animal, right? I think yeah. they, in, in a lot of ways, deserves a lot of respect in terms of just how astute he is in terms of yeah. making the right move at the right time. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so, th- so they mention these things saying, oh, he's, he's trying to, to, you know, change the rules of the game in order to make sure his successor carries out his pet projects, things like that. Well, the reason they put lines like that is because they're trying to, lay the foundations for the undermining of the legitimacy of the next president right because that makes it easier we, it's 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 a tale yeah. as old as time right and they did it to evo morales right before the coup that ousted him they did it to hugo chavez right and 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 all the various regime change attempts against him they're currently doing it now to nicolas maduro Right. you yeah. know, read any piece of, of Daniel Ortega,
1: Diaz-Canal, but, I mean, it's just, yeah. Exactly. Or,
2: or, I mean, probably the most, the most vicious ones is around, around, around Nicaragua. Right. You know, this, this this just, you know, and then it just gets repeated, you know, tell a lie enough times and it becomes the truth. They don't even try to substantiate, oh, 2018 was a, if was a fraudulent election. So that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're basically trying to say, post 2024, that election was not legitimate, therefore, We can implement unilateral course of measures, also known as sanctions, or we can apply tariffs, or or we can undermine their their place in the diplomatic community, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's a a political strategy to try to weaken the next government, which is most likely to be Morena. But the more worrisome one that I think that also demands a lot of attention and hasn't been getting a lot of attention is this threat of unilateral military action by the United States Armed Forces inside Mexico, which we should be clear, and I always say it at the beginning, anytime I touch on this, that's an act of war, right? Yeah. People talk about this as yeah. if it's just, oh, well, it's a simple drone strike. We're just going to take out the labs. No, you can't engage in unilateral military action on a sovereign country. It's a violation of their sovereignty. An act by the Armed Forces is an act of war. Let's be clear about that. Now, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Well, we can actually trace this back to the Trump presidency. Uh, And if we look at uh, when this idea was kind of first came to light publicly, it was actually in Mark Esper's book. So he served as uh, Secretary of Defense, very briefly for Trump, and he wrote about it in his memoir about his time in the Trump cabinet. And when that came out, it's really curious, you know, he reported about how Trump was like, well, can't we just bomb the labs they won't even know it's us right as if it wouldn't be obvious clear as day who committed that but anyway the point is is that he was actually said to have been left speechless at the proposal and if you look at the coverage from any outlet from the new york times to the washington post to the la times whatever you want it was treated as a scandal right Trump is talking about bombing our neighbor and major trade ally, our partner in the in in the international community. Right. Like, despite the differences that exist between today's Mexican president and and the U.S. government and the U.S. uh, state, you know, these countries are allies. Right. They have a profound uh, free trade agreement between them. They have billions of dollars in trade between between the two. It's an absurd proposal. But now, now it's a mainstream idea. Now you have almost every Republican candidate talking about it like it's a legitimate proposal. And this happened really quickly. When I first heard this proposal being floated once again by the Trump supporters, by Trump's, he's got a think tank, the Center for Renewing America, I believe it's called, uh, that put out a policy paper basically calling for this, right? You know, we saw this article from Rolling Stone that talked about how he's basically asking for his advisors. If I win, I want to have battle plans ready to carry out this unilateral attack against Mexico. And it became part of the GOP, the Republican Party's program, basically. There's very few who are pushing back on this. And I think it's also important to to note that, uh, you know, the Democrats who are in the White House now, have not done enough to push back against this idea. It's the kind of thing that well, the Democrats, they don't want, they don't want <laughs> And then there's a reason, right? Like that's exactly right. it. They you don't know, want a- I
1: mean, they're, they're okay. I mean, basically, you know, the inaction is, is
2: action approaching it. Right? Absolutely. Right? And so yeah. why? So why, is, why do we have this consensus? Why did this consensus get established so quickly? Well, because we have a counter hegemonic government. We have a government that is trying to exercise its sovereignty in order to develop its resources for the benefit of the Mexican people. You know, I, 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 I cover Venezuela a lot as a, as a writer for Venezuela analysis. And if you think about, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, Venezuela, oil, that's why they're after it, all this kind of stuff. And yes, that is true, right? The, the US wants to assure that it has stable, secure energy supplies so that it can continue to be the empire that it is. But the actual supply of oil, to the U.S. from Venezuela was never interrupted. You know, that, that whole industry, when oil was discovered in Venezuela, it was developed in partnership with U.S. firms, right? There's a reason why Venezuela's most prized- Chevron's asset. still there. Chevron yeah. is still there, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, their most prized asset is Citgo. Citgo has gas stations all over the U.S., right? Its refineries in Texas are really important to but its- It's not the area. thing,
1: right? The, extract the oil from Venezuela, but have the refinery oh, yeah. in the United States. Yeah. That happened with Mexico too. That's, that's also so You true. don't yeah. have control. You don't have the ability to create a finished product.
2: Yeah, yeah. Which is and colonialism. So, exactly. Extraction and, and it, not. You, yeah, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head, right? The point isn't, it wasn't about oil in Venezuela. It was about the colonial mindset. And in, in the case, same with Mexico, right? It isn't, Mexico is happy, to continue exporting products that are, you know, assembled here—TVs, T-shirts, whatever it is—right, it's happy to sell its natural resources to those who are, who are willing. But the problem is, is that when this you have a government like the one by López Obrador, it's one that has an outlook towards meeting the well-being of the of the country first. So it's to say we want to establish energy sovereignty so that we meet our energy needs first, right? We want to make sure that lithium, if it is developed, is actually benefiting the populations that are going to be affected by its extraction and that the wealth that is generated is actually flows down to the people. That's what they can't tolerate. They can't tolerate that a country would exercise its sovereignty in a means that would actually favor the, mass, the vast majority instead of these powerful elites right that's what it's actually about and so when you see these kinds of threats why you see why the democrats don't push back is because we may eventually be in a situation where they're talking about Uh, Oh, those radical socialists down in Mexico doing this and that, you know, they're authoritarians, they have an out of control cartel organized crime problem, therefore, we need to bring them democracy. And that's when you see the sanctions, and that's when you see the support for the opposition, and that's when you see these efforts to isolate them internationally, that's when you see for, you know, uh, accusations of human rights violations, et cetera, et cetera. These are all tools. I mean, it's the
1: same playbook since 1945.
2: Exactly. It's that the whole game.
1: world knows and has read and understands.
2: <laughs> and that, so, like those military threats, right? Like, if it does come to pass, God willing, it doesn't, right? Like, we should be clear about this. I said, say about this, right? It would be an act of war, but it would also be, it would rain violence on this country, right? Like, it's the cartels aren't out there wearing uniforms saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm an element of the organized crime group. Here's my lab, right? Like, if they do engage, let's say, drone strikes. Just build more labs, right? How many civilians are going to die because bombs are falling from drones? Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio
1: presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston.
0: You think they're foes, they're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say cold pink. Cold pink for freedom.